0: This month on security management highlights. People were really freaking out because sites that they use a lot were not working that day. Denial of service attacks are on the rise, and cyber experts warn a recent attack that made headlines could become the new normal. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates tells us more.
1: These databases evolved over time from just names and fingerprints to some images to now having this advanced technology.
0: There may be holes in two FBI programs that use facial recognition technology to search a database containing 64 million images and fingerprints. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa explains.
2: Finally, the exhaustion then goes into feelings of alienation from your own work, like you feel kind of detached and numb. Could you or your employees be suffering from burnout? Senior
0: Editor Mark Tarallo shares the telltale signs of this potentially dangerous condition. I'm your host, Holly Gilbert-Stowell, and that's all coming up on the February edition of Security Management Highlights. In a denial-of-service attack, a group of computers or machines are used to send several requests to a host server, blocking Internet traffic from reaching its intended destination. This type of cyberattack has become increasingly common in recent years as millions of devices connect to the Internet of Things and become potentially vulnerable to being used as botnets. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates joins us to talk about a recent DDoS attack that made headlines and how the event can be a lesson learned for organizations who want to protect their networks. Hi, Megan. Thanks for stopping by. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. Explain to us what happened during the major denial-of-service attack in October of last year when cyber company Dine was hit.
3: Yeah, I remember this really well because that morning I was working on the morning security brief for the magazine, and I got online and realized I couldn't access Twitter or Wired or several other sites that I normally go to for information. I was like, what's going on? Well, then I learned later that around 7 a.m. on October 21st, Dyn, which is a domain name service provider, was hit by a distributed denial of service attack targeting all of its 18 data centers around the world. And this disrupted tens of millions of Internet protocol addresses, resulting in outages to brand name Internet services like Twitter, Amazon, Spotify, Netflix. People were really freaking out because sites that they use a lot were not working that day. So two hours later, Dyne was able to mitigate the attack and restore service to its customers. But then another attack hit Dine just before noon Eastern time. Dine mitigated the attack in just over an hour, and then a third attack also hit Dine, but this time it was able to mitigate it without it affecting customers at all. So the attacks caused an estimated lost revenue in sales of up to $110 million, according to a letter that U.S. Representative Benny G. Thompson sent to former Department of Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson. And it also came out later that what was behind this attack was a massive botnet called Mirai.
0: Yes, and Mirai is the big perpetrator we're about to talk about, you write that the devices used in the attack were part of the Mirai botnet. So what is Mirai? Maybe even tell us what a botnet is for those of us who need refreshing and how has it been used in other attacks?
3: Yeah. So at a very basic level, a botnet is like a bunch of devices that have been compromised and are used under control to launch an attack on a target. So say they are like a million smart refrigerators that have been compromised to target security management's data center and hopefully bring it down. And so Mirai did some quick research before our interview and Brian Krebs, whose site was attacked by Mirai in September, thinks he knows who created it. This person named Praz Ja, a Rutgers University student and owner of DDoS protection provider, Potref Solutions. And he created this botnet in 2016, and it's made up of at least 500,000 Internet of Things devices. And most of these are devices like DVRs and surveillance cameras hosted in China, Vietnam, Taiwan, South Korea, Indonesia, Brazil, Spain. They're everywhere. And so the Mirai botnet grows by scanning Internet of Things devices for vulnerabilities, introducing malware to the vulnerable device, and then compromising it. And then it just continues to repeat this process to sort of slowly grow. And this poll botnet has been used to conduct several high-profile, high-impact DDoS attacks, uh, like the one on Brian Krebs' website, Krebs on Security. And reading through, Arbor Network put together a threat intelligence report on Mirai. And Mirai serves as the basis of an ongoing DDoS for Hire service. It allows attackers to launch DDoS attacks against targets of their choice in exchange for compensation, typically Bitcoins. So you can go on and contact someone and say, I want to launch a DDoS attack against this particular target, you know, and this is what I'm willing to pay for you to do that. You have an agreement and the attack happens. And attacks using Mirai are going to grow because after the dyne attack, Its source code was published on the internet by someone using the username Anna Senpai, who Brian Krebs thinks is the person who created Mirai in the first place. You know, and in the course of my research for my article, I spoke to Javad Malink. He's a security advocate at AlienVault, and he said that the main problem that's allowing Mirai to continue to grow and which will allow botnets like it in the future to grow is that there are millions of Internet of Things devices out in the marketplace today, and most of them are not patchable. They're very vulnerable to becoming part of a botnet because you cannot patch them, you can't change the security settings on them, you can't introduce a new username or password for the device since that makes them very vulnerable to these kinds of attacks.
0: So, obviously, companies and even individuals you know with smart devices are going to want to protect against this type of attack. Are there any current requirements or regulations in place? I know that after this attack on Dyne, uh, there was some attention on Capitol Hill in the United States.
3: Yeah, there were a couple of hearings in Congress on the Dyne attack, and it was interesting because there were people who were both for regulation. They think regulations should be introduced to try and make Internet of Things devices more secure from from the design phase and require manufacturers to make basically more secure products. But then there were also people who weren't in favor and, you know, don't think that regulations need to be introduced to do that, that, you know, it should sort of be left up to consumers purchasing these products um, and manufacturers, that manufacturers should just go ahead and make changes to make their products more secure, and that consumers, you know, should use their buying power to make sure that they're buying secure devices.
0: And finally, the experts you interviewed did give some great advice for organizations in taking steps to reduce the risk of their own devices being compromised and used to launch attacks against innocent parties. What did they suggest?
3: That's a good question, Holly, and that was actually one of the more interesting parts of my research. I reached out and was able to interview Maury Haber, Vice President of Technology for Security Vendor Beyond Trust kind of about this issue because lots of buildings and especially from a security perspective, you know, your cameras, your access control, they're all Internet of Things devices and they can be connected to your network. So how do you make sure that you're not opening yourself up to vulnerability? And so one thing he said that you should definitely make sure to do is to segment your network, keep your Internet of Things devices off of your main network to try and isolate them. And he said, if this is not possible, then you should remove the Internet of Things devices from your main network and reinstall them on their own network. Maury Haber also said that it's really important to change default user accounts and passwords for these devices and ask vendors if they maintain a service level agreement for critical vulnerabilities. Ask these vendors what's the lifespan that they will publish vulnerabilities for and how often will patches be released. And one thing he did say is imperative to ask is when you're talking to a vendor about patching, you know, and updating an Internet of Things device, ask them what's the patching procedure. Because if you're buying, you know, several thousand cameras to install somewhere, you don't want to have to go into each single device to do something in particular. You want a system that you can patch several of them at the same time without being on site necessarily to do that.
0: Well, thank you so much, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. Law enforcement in the United States can use facial recognition technology to identify criminal suspects using databases that contain millions of images, but researchers report problems in how the databases are handled. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa is here to tell us more. Hello Lily, welcome to the podcast.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Lily, let's start out by talking about the two FBI programs that use facial recognition technology to search a database containing 64 million images and fingerprints. Tell us more about all All this information that law enforcement has access to during an investigation. And how would you go about searching such a giant repository?
1: Sure. So there are two different databases. One that pulls photos, fingerprints, and other identifying information from federal, state, and local law enforcement records. 80% of the database is made up of criminal mugshots. The second program uses this database, as well as other sources, and is mostly made up of civil photos, such as driver's licenses or visa application photos. This database has 411 million photos and counting. When state or local law enforcement agencies need help in an investigation, they ask the FBI to search that first database for a picture of a suspect. So, Holly, let's say the police have a CCTV image of you committing a crime, but no other information to go off of. They can send that image to the FBI, who plugs it into the database, which uses facial recognition software, and will return up to 50 faces that look like yours, along with fingerprints and other identifying information. The second larger database I mentioned earlier can only be used by the FBI internally.
0: And you spoke to Diana Maurer, the Director of Justice and Law Enforcement Issues on the Homeland Security and Justice Team at the Government Accountability Office. She said researchers found a number of privacy, transparency, and accuracy concerns over the two programs, and there's also a recent GAO report about all this. Can you explain?
1: Yeah, these databases evolved over time from just names and fingerprints to some images to now having this advanced technology. Whenever a federal agency collects information on individuals, it must publish a notice, but the FBI didn't submit that information for three years after these updated programs were in use. The FBI says the programs were still in pilot phases, but Maurer told me there were still 20,000 investigative searches conducted during the pilot. In fact, the FBI didn't publish notices about these databases until they received a draft of the GAO report calling them out for it.
0: There are some other challenges the FBI is facing as well over its databases. Tell us what some of the other ones are.
1: Like the public announcements I mentioned, this kind of boils down to technicalities. The GAO report points out that there haven't been any audits on the effectiveness of the smaller database. The FBI said that's because this program hasn't been operational long enough to conduct any assessments, but the GAO says parts of the program have been used in investigations since 2011. As for the internal FBI database, the feds say they don't have an obligation to audit it. That's because this giant civil database draws from 18 other databases around the country. The FBI says that the responsibility for auditing those lies with their owners, even though the FBI is using their information for investigations. And on top of all of that, the GAO also raised questions about the operational testing done on these programs. They also haven't tested the false positive
0: rate. And you finally write, this type of technology isn't just used by law enforcement, which further compounds the problem. Where else can we see these applications being used, and why does that matter?
1: Yeah, this is where it gets a little weird. There's this new app in Russia called FindFace that allows the user to take a picture of anyone and then uses facial recognition technology to search social media sites and other public sources for an identity match. The app has a 70% accuracy rate and a database of a billion photos, and Moscow officials are working with the app's creators to integrate the city's 150,000 surveillance cameras into the database to help solve crimes. But this app can be used by anyone, which gets a little creepy. That's why it's so important these privacy and operational issues of facial recognition technology are addressed before it really takes off, although it seems it already has.
0: Well, thank you so much for stopping by today and explaining all this to us, Lily, and I hope I'm never on that app. Thanks, Holly. Finally, burnout has a potentially devastating effect on employees and the companies they work for, but this condition can often fester for years without being detected. Senior Editor Mark Tarallo joins us to talk about the symptoms of burnout and how workers and managers alike can effectively address the problem. Hello, Mark. Good to see you. Hi, Holly. Mark, define burnout for us. What are the symptoms of this condition and how might employees arrive at such a state?
2: Burnout occurs when the demands people face on the job outstrip the resources they possess to meet them. So psychologists who study burnout sometimes divide it into three dimensions. Exhaustion, depersonalization, and reduced personal accomplishment. And just quickly, exhaustion can be emotional exhaustion, physical exhaustion. Or just cognitive depletion where a worker feels so exhausted that whatever the task is, they feel, wow, it's going to be so hard just to do this because, you know, I'm just so, I really just feel stripped of uh, resources. That can lead to depersonalization where the exhaustion then goes into feelings of alienation from your own work. Like you feel kind of detached and numb. You know, I don't want to do this anymore. It doesn't really matter anymore. That's type of thing. The third component is reduced personal accomplishment when when all this is happening, what one expert says is people who are burned out often have less executive function, the kind of nuanced work you need to focus on a task, to connect the dots between ideas, to strategize, to analyze, the type of high-level thinking that people often need for their jobs. That really goes by the wayside just because of the burnout that they're feeling. And as we said, burnout is when demands outstrip resources. For security practitioners, this can be a big problem because demands can be very high. Not only can workload be high, but some security practitioners are in situations where if I make a mistake, this could mean a breach in my company's security. Very demanding, very, very high high risk and that can really add to symptoms of burnout.
0: Yes, so sounds like a task, no matter how large or small, could be more difficult when you're suffering from burnout. So how can a manager detect when a worker could be suffering from this or are on the verge of complete burnout? And how would they go about treating it?
2: Yeah, in terms of how a manager may detect this, several signs, experts say, if a worker seems to have a general lack of energy and enthusiasm or extreme sensitivity and irritability toward co-workers or management, they're also... So signs of greater stress, someone being under greater stress, feeling greater anxiety. And then there's signs that could affect someone's output, a drop in the quality of output or the quantity and the timeliness of output. So the work itself can suffer. All these symptoms are something that really don't have to be symptoms of burnout, but they could reflect that. So it's good for managers uh, to be aware of those.
0: Okay, so let's say that you're the boss. You've recognized a certain employee is showing some or all or a range of these symptoms
2: How do you go about treating it and helping them recover? There's several steps to that. The kind of foundation for treatment is having a good relationship with your staff. You regularly talk to them, you kind of check in on them, things like that. That helps you obviously identify signs like burnout, but then also once you want to help a staffer treat burnouts, knowing the staffer well, having a good relationship helps with the treatment side. And there are several things a manager can do. For instance, talk about workload. If burnout is due to just too much work on the employee's plate. The manager and the worker can brainstorm. Maybe we can outsource some of this. We can find ways where your workload wouldn't be so huge. So you can kind of strategize in that way. But there's also things like giving workers some more decision authority, which can give them more of a sense of autonomy and strength when dealing with issues. And then that way, the employee feels that they don't have to keep talking to like a million different people If they want to get something done, you know, they can make the decision. They can decide to go left or right or that helps them actually getting things done. Also, helping your team members build resilience skills. And that could be anything like identifying ways where the worker can take more vacation where the worker can take more regular breaks, something like that, something that will rebuild the resources side that will really help a worker be resilient and basically help treat uh, burnout.
0: Now, this has all been from the manager side. How about the employee, you know, himself? How do they go about recognizing this in themselves and obviously having the autonomy to take steps, help themselves? Because you can only lead a horse to watermark.
2: That's right. That's right. And so there are several things workers can do too. You could say they're almost on the umbrella of strategizing to make sure that workload does not become overwhelming. For instance, scheduling your own day, you should take breaks, but Take breaks at the right time. Realize when your energy is at its peak. Let's say in the morning. A lot of people feel when they first get to work, their energy levels at their peak. Schedule maybe your most difficult things, your most intense things in the morning. You have the most energy to get through them. Then after a few productive hours, take a break. And sometimes when you take a break, getting out of the office can help. It can help you see the big picture, kind of get out of the weeds, have a bit of a new Perspective. Um, Some people will do it by having lunch away from your desk. It could be even something like taking a walk in the afternoon. Then there's the after hours. Try to limit, as best you can, use of digital devices. Don't check email every half hour when you're home. Try to turn off at some point. Maybe even say, okay, after 8 p.m., I'm not going to check my email. I'm not going to check or at least return texts unless it's an emergency. Urgency, you know, that type of limiting. And then also scheduling restorative experiences. Uh, that could be anything from doing something fun to doing something that'll take your mind off of work and kind of able for your mind to replenish itself.
0: You point out in the story that some employees already suffering from burnout could have a bad reaction to pointing this out. Uh, they are obviously already overtired and overworked, so pointing out that anything might be wrong could be a touchy subject. So how can the manager address it in a way that the worker might be receptive to?
2: That's a real good question. And that gets to one big thing of the manager and the employee's relationship. So if the manager is in tune with the employee, kind of knows them, knows the quality of their work, they'll be able to pick up on differences and signs and things like that, which will then make it easier for the employee. And frankly, it's something that the manager can bring up first you know i noticed that you were behind on these tasks you know is anything wrong what's going on that type of thing so being proactive is really important and then also uh the manager doesn't always have to wait for clear signs of burnout but can be be proactive in terms of regular checking in even when it seems like an employee is going gangbusters how are you doing i just every couple months how you doing you know what's going on what you think of this that type of proactive checking in um really helps because it 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 acts as a window, it's easier then for an employee to say, well, now that you bring it up, I was able to get all my stuff done last month, but I've been really stressed about it, tell you the truth. So that proactive approach really can help a lot.
0: Now, one thing that's tricky about burnout is people often don't actually fizzle out and stop being productive, but they're at a plateau. Tell us more about that.
2: Yeah, that's a key issue. One of the experts who, who herself suffered very bad burnout as an, an attorney. Paula Davis Lack, an interesting career trajectory. She was a attorney who did suffer really bad burnout, and now she's a consultant who helps people get through burnout. So a nice career change for her. But she brings up that very salient point you just mentioned of burnout often plateaus rather than peaks. So what can often happen, especially with people who are normally pretty productive, they can feel burned out and can can be at least partially burned out, but they'll still work. The burnout will negatively affect their work. They may be getting less done. They may be making more mistakes, but they're still getting some things done. And a mistake one can make is to assume, well, if you're still getting stuff done, you're not burned out which is incorrect. Burnout doesn't mean you're you know, collapsed at your desk and incapacitated. You can still be working, but really be suffering burnout. So it's important to keep that in mind as a manager, as an employee, on any side of this equation.
0: Which makes it, as you said, even more important to be on high alert for these symptoms. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. That does it for this month. Be sure to tune in regularly for our bonus material throughout the month and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Once again, I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye-bye.